Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. What is going on today, Kim? Well, we're talking about Paris is Burning. What? Yes, y'all. It's been almost 30 years. Oh my goodness. Since Paris is Burning was released. It was released in 1991. And it is the seminal documentary about the Harlem ballroom scene that was started in 1972 by Miss Crystal Abasia. Yes. Um, and so with us today, we have some amazing guests. We're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about its cultural impact and how it has influenced culture over low these many years. So, oh my God, I'm so excited. Um, we have right here to my right, Mr. Quinn Calicut. Yay. Hello. Yes. Um, Quinn is a licensed clinical social worker and lecturer at Cal State Long Beach, as well as a DJ. And over to Quinn's right, (laughs) (laughs) we have Ernest Hardy, cultural critic and uh, adjunct at California Institute of the Arts, who is teaching global queer studies, as well as house music, the birth and trajectory of house music from the 80s to the mid-90s. Welcome, Ernest. Thank you. <laughs> it's so awesome to have you here, Ernest, and actually, and Quinn, too, because uh, this film is so, as a lot of people know, near and dear to my heart. I mean, this was m- my life, and I love that we just recently got to all see it together not too long ago and just kind of relive a lot of not only the poignant parts of the film, but, you know, the fu- the funny kiki parts that usually recite these, like, memorable lines in our everyday, you know, hangout. Yes. <laughs> so it's really interesting that that film really has, has got legs. Well, yes. I would even say that this cultural moment, that film is one of the primary tributaries, you know, in terms of language, in terms of attitude, you know, I see it not only at my school, but you know, you see it everywhere in pop culture, you know, and it's interesting, to, one of the things that's interesting to me, I'm probably jumping way ahead, but one of the things that's interesting to me is how often what is in the film is so much smarter and more nuanced than the way in which it is referenced inside it in pop culture at the moment. For example, you know, the ways in which shade and reading are, inter- are used interchangeably now right. and misused all the time. You know, and it really, you know, I really, one of the things I say to my students, because I show this film, one of the things I say to them is, this film is a perfect, you know, embodiment, you know, encapsulation of the ways in which so much black theory and cultural production from that which is on the margins to that in academia, once it goes into the mainstream, it becomes really flattened out and dumbed down. And you see that with everything from, you know, as I say, it's shade and reading to the way in which the word, the term intersectional is used, you know, the, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And it's a very complicated political framework. And it's not used the way this black woman intended, you know, all the way to, to something like the word down low. You know, down low used to be, be much more dynamic a term. I mean, it meant secretive right. and everything, but it, it didn't mean this sort of nefarious sexuality. But once it crossed over into the mainstream, it became really dumbed down. And so for my students, I often play the Farsight track down low, you know, and say, you know, this was a term that had all sorts of you know, meaning and play. And then I play um, 
TLC um, creep, you know, just keep it on the down low. And these are women saying, you know, I want you to keep it on the down low. <laughs> so again, um, I always, then I circle back to Paris is Burning and say, you know, talk about all the different ways in which so much of what we see in that film is so smart and so nuanced and so layered. And I think a lot of people who consume the film now, and I use consume as opposed to engage, <laughs> I think a lot of people who consume the film now really flatten, flatten it out. That's what I really want to talk about now. Of course, you can't look at the film without just, it's loaded with all these things that have transpired since then and what we know now, you know, that perspective. But I want to go back to 1991 and talk about when the film first came out. It was a lot of people's first exposure, really, to ballroom culture. Um, Vogue had come out a few months prior to that, but I don't think, you know, most people didn't really know what the association was. So let's all go back and talk about just seeing the film for the first time. And I shoot, I forgot to mention that it has just been the reason we just recently saw it. it's been re-released in theaters with a restored print. It's beautiful. If you haven't seen it and you can catch it, you know, yeah. in the theaters, please I do. Think, well, I think it's one of those movies that is a must, you know, is a must see, especially if you're a queer youth growing up. It's good to see where not not essentially where all this came from but this moment that was captured in time yeah yes that uh is having a a huge renaissance you know at this moment in time absolutely so quinn where were you when you first saw it (laughs) i'm actually trying to recall the first time i saw it i don't know if it was in the theater if i saw like a vhs copy of it or or what it is but I'm not having difficult. I'm just thinking like, you know, like the generation before me, they used to have that big thing about like, do you remember where you were when Kennedy was assassinated? And like, I do not remember where I was when I first saw Paris is Burning. Well, so, more like just the, but the so initial impressions. The initial impressions of the film was, I have to tell you, I really, I think it's like, it's, it's the twofold thing for it for me. And it's still kind of to this day, which is sort of the I've always touched by the entertainment value of it. And back then it was just sort of like, I'd never seen this world. I'd never been exposed to this world at all. Cause we, I mean, I think we, we have similar things here on the, on the West coast, but nothing to the extent I don't think as was going on in the, in the East coast. Um, so first off, just the mere entertainment value of it. And the truth of the matter is, it's, it's explicitly stated like Kim Pendavis is staying from the very beginning of the movie. Like we do this so people can enjoy it. And so I kind of caught on to that also to like the catchphrases and the words and stuff like that. But I think from the very beginning, it's also sort of the poignancy of the whole thing. And even more so back from when I first saw it, because, you know, there's always these very touching moments. I think that it was more amplified this last time that we saw it all together recently because it starts off very sort of like celebratory and you're seeing the people performing and stuff. And the film really emotionally gets very deep and very, very real, very real. Yes. And solemn to a certain extent too, as it goes down too. And I think it was just more amplified. And I don't know if that's sort of like, you know, just seeing it in the context of the time today, but um, that's always captured me as well too. So I think that my reaction to the film is the same. I think that I actually felt a little more, saddened by it seeing it recently though i think first it was just sort of more sort of like this this uh, having this exposure to this world that was unfamiliar to me and being fascinated by what i was seeing and entertained by it but 
it actually kind of hurts to watch the film. And I was, so we were kind of mentioning last night, I know you're asking me back then, but I feel like I, it, since it's more present, what's going on, seeing it on the big screen, I think seeing how stark some of the things that you don't necessarily see when you're seeing it on a TV set. So for instance, and there's that whole scene where um, Octavia has the pictures of Paulina Porskova up on the wall. And like on the TV, I didn't realize it's like, why does the door where she has her full length mirror next to it, why is there a padlock on it? I'm like, it's just very like, like, like what, where is she living New that, York City. that the door has a padlock on it? And then when Venus is being interviewed and she's doing that whole sort of talk about, you know, like sort of transactional sex and what have you, there's this big fat Colt 45 ball. Like nobody decided like, let's clean that up or anything. It's just, it's very stark and it's very, as you said, it's very real. So um, I think from the time I first saw it, just sort of being sort of fascinated by what I was seeing and, and captivated by it. It's it's definitely my reactions to it now in 2019 are 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 definitely more visceral. So, well, I think it's hard to uh, just go back and realize too. In 1991, this was really the first time. When did ha, had you seen a movie with so many? First of all, just gay people, gay and trans folks, particularly gay and trans folks of color. Color, yeah. And the in, in an entire film. Mm-hmm. I mean, where had you seen that prior? to that so Ernest I want to talk about um your first time seeing it and if it was just as were you seeing it to to write about it or yeah you know I saw it actually before it's theatrical release because it was I forget if it was Outfest or the AFI Fest and so I went to a press screening and to show you how little regard the film was held in at that time it was in this little in this very small room with one of those like pull down screens that was like sort of ratty around the edges right <laughs> um because they the, you know the film didn't really register with you know we, we can see it like basically the cisgender heterosexual white folks who were programming film festivals they didn't know what this was and they didn't treat it as you know we should give this the optimum viewing right so i'm sitting there i'm the only black person the only person of color in the room Surprise. You know, <laughs> nothing but like white people. And when it was over, I was actually almost shell shocked, you know, because you go on, there's this roller coaster of emotion, right? And I was still processing, and part of me was like happy, but part of me was teary. And <laughs> this white woman, I won't say her name, film critic, she was like, that Venus extravaganza, what a horrible, stupid, she just went on this whole thing about Venus's, you know, um, what Quinn mentioned, the transactional sex thing. She was so offended. Jesus. You know? um, wow. And I was just like, it, it really stumped, sort of like thwarted my high, <laughs> you know. And in, in a lot of ways, though, it was kind of perfect to, to be a black gay person having watched this film and then to have this white woman shit on it and not know what she'd seen and to reduce the entirety of the film to this one moment in which she'd been offended and she was offended because she was too too dumb to really grasp what Venus was saying mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, so there were all these layers to it so so that was my first experience of of the film now did you know anything about ballroom culture prior to seeing the film no no I'm originally from Detroit and we have our own black faculty. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, black faculty. Yes. You know, um, but it's not quite that. And you know, it's it's you know, we you know we have our own house music and techno and that was played in the clubs and things. And um, you know, the great um, late Ken Collier, the the black gay Detroit um, DJ, 
um, who was sort of like the equivalent of Larry Levan or, or, you know, Frankie Knuckles before Detroit. Um, but as far as the ballroom scene, I knew nothing of it. And it took me a minute, actually, to realize that I actually had seen little snippets of it, though, in Tongues Untied. Well, oh, you're right. Right, because I, 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 saw, I saw Tongues Untied and Paris is Burning, and there, is, there are snippets of, of ballroom. And in fact, Willie Ninja, he does a fantastic um, routine in Tongues Untied. Um, but it took me a minute to, to realize that I, ha- I had seen a snippet of it, because having moved to L.A., there was nothing quite like that yet. Absolutely. You know? And definitely in Detroit, like I said, there was this you know, Detroit thing. Right. But it was very different. Yes. And so that brings me to, so Deep in Vogue had come out, I think, a year prior to that, maybe. And um, I remember having the Walt Starling album, the Malcolm McLaren album, (laughs) which it was on. And, you know, he name checks all these houses, but I didn't really connect it to anything. I was like, oh, that's. And so Lewis, member of the House of Extravaganza, but at Uh the time of the film, she filmed the film over seven years. So she probably started it. 1980 around that time by the time the film is released you are not only an extravaganza I mean you're already part of the Blonde Ambition tour that whole thing so talk to us about seeing the film your awareness of when it was going on were you involved like in the filming did you know it was being filmed and your kind of expectation of what you thought it was going to be versus what the film actually turned out to be at the time when they were filming. I was not an extravaganza yet. I was uh, Lame from the House of Lame. Shout out to Ronald Lame. <laughs> but <laughs> and my category was different back then. Uh, my category was Butch Queen first time in drag. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's a point in the film where Paris takes off her wig headdress because it was, she had a fur headpiece on as well too and she takes it off and she's going butch queen butch queen and she's literally she's walking towards me Mm -hmm. at that moment in the film and i thought when i first saw the film i was like oh my god i made oh i didn't make it (laughs) (laughs) they literally cut it off before she walked to me and the reason why she was even walking towards me at that point was because i was walking the ball everybody was in an uproar Another person entered to walk against me, but she was a trans girl. So they got upset. So, you know, everything in the ballroom is drama, right? Mm. So, you know, they were like, work. You know, they were calling me like, Jennifer, oh, she's giving us Jennifer Beals work. La, la, la. <laughs> dance. You know, because I had a long curly wig on and this, that, the other, blah, 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 right? <laughs> and so, you know, I guess this other, you know, person was not having it so she comes out and you know she's snatched and she's beautiful but they were like that's it you know that's a trans girl and she's trans blah, blah, blah. and so paris said hold up and she said stop and she was like this is butch queen up in drags butch queen so of course at that moment my friends proceed to <laughs> make my dress into a two-piece so they ripped the top and they pulled my, the, 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 because I sewed it together. This is what we did for the balls, right? So I sewed my outfit together. It really was a two piece, but it, I turned it into a dress and then they ripped it and made it back into a two piece. And then they took out my, uh, my stuffing 
in the chest area, you know, I was my bra and all that stuff to prove that I was a butch queen. Throughout all that, I see, Jay, you know, Miss Livingston and her crew like all over filming this, that, the other. So I thought I was going to be in Paris is Burning, but I'm not. And I wasn't. But that didn't, you know, askew my vision of what the film was. I still thought it was fantastic. And for me, you know, those two little kids yeah, in the beginning and the end, I mean, as cute as they want to be and just industry i mean there that was us i wasn't that young but that was you know that was us you know hanging out outside of sally's hollow hideaway you know in that area and just hanging out <laughs> just hanging out and those two I, w I always wonder what happened to those two kids you know i single those two out um, when i lecture on the film because something really amazing um, is being depicted for us, we see that the one who is the most femme yeah. is the one who's homeless and the one who's been kicked out. And the little macho is the one who can go home and blend and not be detected. And that is such a powerful... And, you know, the film doesn't beat you over the head with that, but, you know, to see... And you can even see in their demeanors because little macho... I mean, and they're both adorable. You just want to take them both home, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, little macho... There's a light in his eyes. He's giggly, whatever. And the other one, there's a there's a gravitas already. There's a weight, yeah. you know. There's a weight, and it, it just really always moves me because I think you know the window of childhood for black and brown kids is already very narrow. Yes. If you factor in queerness, then that window almost is nailed shut, right? And to see these two kids, you know, it, it, it's it's heartbreaking to me. Right. You know, um, even even the, the, the laughter and the flirtation, because you, you see you see what is mapped out for mm -hmm. the film versus the macho. Um, I, I just think there's so much in that. It really is. There really, really is. And at the end, you know, the film one is like, this is it. This is this is life. And it's just like, oh, my God, you're for individuals such as yourself. You are right. Yeah, that is the life. How do they get out of that? You know? And, and the way in which wondering. that echoes, you know, when Angie Extravaganza, after she's eulogizing, well, when she's eulogizing Venus, and she says, you know, I always told Venus you take too many chances, you yeah. jumping out of cars, blah, blah, blah. She says, you know, but that's gay life. You know, and the little boy at the end echoes that. Right. You know, it's just, wow. He's already plugged into that wisdom and that hard-earned truth absolutely <laughs> at 14 yes. at 14 yes. and it's a shame that that woman critic didn't get that that day which is really a shame so i'll i digress so yeah and it's really heartbreaking how matter of fact angie is about it really like well you know that's gay life in new york city so you know dorian corey um, we have to talk about Miss Dorian Corey, who really is like the Greek chorus, the matriarch, yes. you know, the narrator of the film with so much wisdom. And I can't help thinking, you know, this is before drag race. This is before Queer Eye. Like to, if it was today, I could see Dorian Corey having like a show like I, I, I am love fix my life, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dorian Corey fix my life. No, because <laughs> no, because there's a certain kind of black faggotry that the mainstream once now. Yes. And Dorian, as brilliant and fierce and fabulous as she is, is still too real. Right. <laughs> you know, she says so many poignant things. I think she is probably one of the most quoted um, 
Hooray for you. Yes. I mean, that end. It just, you get chills every time, every time you see the ending of the movie. But what they really, they don't talk about her background at all and how she came into the, you know, a little bit. But when she says, you know, I've always done this professionally is absolutely true. She was a burlesque performer and she snake dancer. And she was also a graduate of Parsons, mm. the Parsons school of design. And she really made, she, um, also sewed costumes for the ball kids and had this really amazing life, which they didn't really delve into. But, um, and at some point she studied mummification. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I, 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 I was wondering who was going to bring that up. <laughs> so listen, <laughs> wait, should, she should, should, wait, should someone speak on it for the listeners that may not Absolutely know the story? Absolutely. Because you cannot, and now you're watching it. She's putting on this makeup and you know, right in the back of, in that closet. In one of those trunks. Yeah. Is oh boy. Uh, on in some leather uh, naga hide. There's some embalmed human being. <laughs> yes. Like with that cat probably crawling on top of the box, <laughs> probably. The yes. cat was protecting the The cat the was protecting thing. the sarcophagus. Yes. Yes. So, Louis, do you want to uh, just bring everybody up to speed on what we're talking about? Dorian Corey, who was the mother of the house of Corey. Yes. Yes. Had, well, it turns out when she passed... They, you know, went through her apartment to sort through her things and uh, they found a trunk in her closet and inside the trunk were the remains of a male that was mummified and stored in her closet. Since they think like 1968. Really? And she had moved. So she broke She had moved apartments. transferred. Yeah. Okay. Yes. That's commitment. And depending on which story you read, which source you read, he was either someone who was trying to break into her apartment and she you know, killed him in like self-defense, or he was... Um, a trick. A, 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 like a lover, yeah. yeah. Um, but what's interesting also is his family... He, apparently, he was not a, a liked person at all. Like nobody liked him, not even his family. And he yeah, because he had he already was, had a rape charge. He, yeah, I think. he was never reported missing. <laughs> no no one ever like did started any proceedings to look for him or anything so one of the other things that they don't really go into in the film that much is and you know i think the unsung heroes of the ballroom scene are the mcs um junior la beja lets you have it and i want to talk to you but like the balls it seems to me like wouldn't be the balls without the commentary, without... W- well, I think you're correct. It moved the ball. He moved the ball along. Yep. And, you know, Junior was mo- one of many. Yes. Uh, but he was popular. Uh, so he, let's concentrate, I mean, concentrating on him, he moved the ball along and he was funny. He was really, you know, he was funny. So he had a knack for diffusing whatever was brewing. Right on the floor because sometimes these competitions became contentious right Right. so one house didn't like the judgment of you know whatever was happening on the floor so they would you know get riled up now at this point that this is like three four five in the morning so everybody's a little tipsy Mm -hmm. you know their state of mind is 
altered. They want their person to win. So they have this pride invested in what's happening. You know, their house is, you know, the best house. So when it doesn't go their way, you know, that's like a incendiary. Oh, <laughs> it's beliefs. a powder keg, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a powder keg, right? So then Junior had a knack of throwing, you know, cute shade and making everybody stop for a moment and laugh and hopefully diffuse what was, you know, going on and on the floor. That takes such quickness. Absolutely. Yes. And such psychological insight. That's right. To, to not only see what is happening, but also to figure out, okay, how, how do I flip this? And flip it in a way that is amusing so that no one is really offended. Even if I'm throwing shade, no one's really offended. The, the nuance and layers of that are really phenomenal. Yes. The attention me, to detail, improv, yes. like all of that. Because there were, you know, let's be real, there were no metal detectors at the door of the house. <laughs> <laughs> are you getting my drift? Right. Yes. So it wasn't only chairs being flung and thrown. Gotcha. Like you said, it wasn't just June LaBeja who had his own style. And there was the other MC who they featured who was, do you know, his name. I don't remember his name. No. Nope. Who had a very different style. It was like, come, come, come. Um, they're, sh- yeah. <laughs> they're showing up for the press, you know. Right. Octavia, where are you? Oh, there you are. Not bothered. <laughs> you know. But also, too, I'm not confirmed, but I'm assuming that Junior LaBeja is also one of the main narrators of the film as well, too. Is Junior LaBeja. Okay, so there's that very important um, monologue in the middle of the film talking about like the the example of behavior modification over the last 400 years. I've always assumed that was Junior LaBeja, but... Well, when the voice is talking about uh, look at these uh, white guys, they have 14 room mansions and stuff like that, that's David Ian. Oh, okay. Yeah. And in the beginning, uh, when uh, the gentleman is talking about our mother and the House of Extravaganza, that's Danny Extravaganza. Okay. Okay. Um, One of the themes running through the film is this aspirational, you know, they don't say white privilege, you know, they don't actually say those words, but that definitely is, we're dealing with that all throughout the film. You know, I never felt comfortable being poor. You know, even Mm -hmm. middle class doesn't suit me. (laughs) Amen, honey. And one of the the parts of the film that feels it's it's actually heartbreaking in a way because Octavia, as you mentioned, has all these tears from magazines with models, but her who she says she admires is Paulina Periscova, who is the whitest <laughs> out of those models. You know, mm-hmm. this is before. I mean, when this film comes out, this is before Beyonce or Rihanna or but, Oprah you know, wasn't even Oprah. But she time. also, she does have, and it took me a minute to notice this after watching it for like the 700th time. <laughs> she does have like an autographed photograph of Diana Ross. Yeah, on the she, wall does. Well. she does. It says, and it says to and Octavia says, on it. Yeah. And it says to Octavia. Yes. Right? Right. She does. But, but your point stands and you're one of the things, you know, because we're talking in very um, glowing terms about the film, but the film um, had some very hard reviews from um, like Bell Hooks, when when I teach the film, when I t- teach the film, I, I pass out two essays. I pass out Bell Hooks review and I pass out Essex Simple's review, because Bell was not a fan, but she makes a lot of really good points. Um, I would recommend that people um, read that. It's in her book Black Looks. Yeah, Black Looks: Race and Representation. Um, it's a very good, but very hard you know review. And then Essex Simple. Um, 
raves about it. I mean, he has some quibbles, but he basically raves about it. And so one of the things I tell my students to do is don't feel like you've got to, you know, show allegiance to one camp or the other. Read them both and, and sort of synthesize and then make up your own mind. And because I had one student when she, you know, I played a clip um, of Octavia. I think it's from the documentary, How Do I Look, where she's ripping the film apart ripping she she's like i hate that movie i don't know what people see in it i don't know why they watch it right and so i had one student a very earnest young white lesbian um say to me you know i can't believe you would show this film and octavia is saying how much she hated it and i said given this moment in which we live in which you know the language and the the style and the affect and everything from that film is everywhere i want you to see the film so you can know where this stuff comes from, it's up to you to think critically and decide, you know, what you think about the film, but you should at least know where these things come from, right? Um, but I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. My, my students be all over the place. My students are just like, we can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things, going back to what you, going back to about the Paulina, one of the shortcomings in the film to me is where Jenny's camera did not go, right? Yes. Um, I would have loved if she followed one of the black or brown banshee girls home, right? Because obviously their notion of womanhood and what was desirable and what was viable was their black mother or their brown auntie. It wasn't some white woman. And it would have been really interesting to have Jenny talk to them about, you know, what is a woman to you? What is feminine to you? What do you aspire to? Because mm -hmm. it's not Eurocentric. It's something else. And I think a lot of people, when they see the banshee girls in the film, not the people in this room or people like us, but I think a lot of people, you know, when you see, you know, the dark-skinned banjo girl, when you see the, the brown girl who's chewing gum and she's got the earrings, it's, it's, a, it's a laugh, you know, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. Mm -hmm. And it would have been really wonderful if Jenny had, had taken her camera home with them, you know, to, to talk to them about their dreams and their aspirations and who their models were, right? I would have loved if she would have followed Candy LaBeja Yes. You know, the big, yes, you know, absolutely. voluptuous girl. Absolutely. I mean, she's so, in her own way, you know, in her own way, so real and so, you know, really pretty. And yes, very. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, she would do Banji, she would do Sexy Body, she would do Big Girls Runway Effect. I mean, and so I agree with you on that point. They should have, she should have followed her to get her perspective. And also, I think, you know, if she'd followed one of the Banji boys home, and I don't know how, how revealing a banshee boy would have been, you know. But, you know, to just really underscore the fact that drag is not just about, you know, pulling on feminine attire. That's right. Masculinity, macho, that's drag, you know. Right. And, to, and to sit and talk with one of the banshee boys about what is it you aspire to? What is it of yourself that you think you're tapping into? What is it of yourself that you're trying to show the world when you are pulling on this, quote unquote, banshee drag? Because it is drag, yeah. you know. And it always freaks my students out when I say to them, every single one of you right now is in drag. And if all the straight boys are always like, oh, no. Yeah, because not only are the girls trying to be passable as real women, the banshee boys are trying to be passable as non-gay men right. in their neighborhood. So that way they don't get you know, called out exactly. or beat up on. Exactly. So yeah, they're putting on that banshee boy drag and being you know, tough and hard and, and quote-unquote, down. And, and I want to complicate that a little bit by saying, you know, straight boys put on that drag as well. Oh, yeah. 
You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So, so, the it's, so yeah. So it's so it's not just you know the gay boy who doesn't want to be clocked. It's the straight boy who is performing what society tells him straightness is. Or so, whatever those subcultures are. Right. Exactly. You know, the surfers exactly. have one look, exactly. and the punks have Ex- one exactly. look. Exactly. I mean, someone someone needs to write a kids. book on on the the drag of the cisgender heterosexual <laughs> rapper. <Yeah. laughs> but You're, I think you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, going back to Octavia, I think we also have to go back to this time where we're talking about the 80s, the Reagan era, where these ostentatious, you know, forms of wealth, that was all the rage. It was the yuppie era, the Beamers, the preppy look was in, you know, polos and all of that, like uh, town and country, you know. Dynasty. Yeah. Yeah, Dynasty. Dynasty. But also at the same time, you look back then, like just as quickly as that sweeped in, there were all these cautionary tales in mainstream media. There was like Gordon Gecko and The Greed is Good in Wall Street. There was those Brett Easton Ellis books coming out and stuff like that, too. So there was also a pretty swift reaction to how damaging this 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 aspirational lifestyle can be as well, too. Yes. But when you're talking about poor uh, kids of color, black and brown kids, I think that became the, the. you know, that was like just the ultimate sign of success. Yes. Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about this being the Trump era. That was the Trump era. Yeah. There's even a Time magazine cover where they go and Trump is on it. That right. whole just like ostentatious, mm-hmm. over the top designer jeans. You know, they even talk about it in the balls, which is now it's about labels. And it's designers. not about creating. It's about acquiring. Right. Yes. Which is such a a prescient foreshadowing of what was to come for America, period. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but one thing, you know, about the aspirational, I, I always, I, I quote um, the film scholar Donald Bogle, who's written books like Brown Sugar and Tom Tom's Coons, Mulattoes, and Mammies, when he writes about the film um, Imitation of Life. And he, he says, you know, I want to make it clear that in, in trying to pass, Sarah Jane, it's less about her wanting to be white than her wanting to have white privileges, right. right? And I think that's a really crucial distinction. And I also want to um, read just a little bit from an essay by Frankie Leon Roberts, who's a scholar based in New York um, and has written extensively about house um, about ball culture um, and is not a fan of the film at all. Really, not a fan of the film. But he does say one thing. Say. Um, something that I think is crucial to what we're saying now. He says, um, many, and this is a direct quote from his essay from 2007, many outsiders misinterpret the houseball scene's fascination with things like labels and fashion as a simplistic envying of white consumer culture. However, in actuality, a closer look at the sociological context of the balls shows that this is not really the case. The categories themselves are not nearly as important as the competition, kinship, and relationships that are formed by and through the preparation for the events and the effects of gaining status within the community itself. Also, Houseball culture is rooted in a rich tradition of African-American cultural practices that privilege inversion, code-switching, and signifying. Thus, unlike hip-hop culture, the emphasis on bling-bling and acting like a, quote, white woman is actually more of an ironic mockery and critique of these values, more so than a straightforward embracing. It's so interesting because you talk, Willie Ninja, who talks about, you know, I I, want to go and I want to have my name known everywhere. And now you're seeing this all happening right now. 
at the time of the film, I think it was just sort of starting to happen. You know, he, he talks about, I have my foot just in every little doorstep. Vogue had come out just six months before. And then I think the tour in 1990. Okay, so that's when you really started seeing, you know, ballroom really go kind of mainstream. You know, now you're looking at, you have RuPaul's Drag Race and you have all these platforms, but it really didn't exist as much then. Some people were able to go on and kind of make a career and and kind of use that platform. And then, you know, some kids really just were were not able to. And Willie was one of those people that really used his talents to be all over the world and get his name out there and really, you know, do choreography. And he worked a lot in runway, you know, doing runway work in Paris and here and in Japan. So he got, you know, he, his wish was fulfilled. And that is also because he was really talented, you know, he was really talented. Yes. And he was really nice. And his outlook uh, his vibration was more than his surroundings where he grew up and where he was living you know what I'm saying like he wasn't satisfied with where he was so he worked towards going to where he wanted to be and he used his talents and sometimes I think some of those you know some of those guys didn't have that tool and I don't think it's the case today. I think with social media and all these platforms and Instagrams mm-hmm. and, you know, you can become greater than thou. You even, know, if from, from, even if you, you don't, don't have, have a fraction of the talent that will Exactly. Have. As long as you present as if you do. Right. From your couch. Yeah. <laughs> from your bedroom. I also think that in a lot of ways it, it speaks to just an age old truth, which is that the true visionaries, the true the people who kick down the doors are, are rarely the people who benefit from it. You know, I mean, that's something that's true um, of the arts throughout the history of the arts, you know. Um, and ballroom culture has been on the cutting edge of so much for so long. And it takes two, three decades for everyone else to catch up. And when you, when the people who kicks down the door are, you know, battling poverty, battling a lack of access to basic necessities, dealing with health issues. You know, a lot of them are not going to survive to see the maturation of the culture they built, you know, not to see the evolution of the culture they built. Um, and one thing that um, in my class, I show a lot of videos. People don't realize just, you know, to, to build on what Lewis was saying, just how incredibly prolific Willie Ninja actually was. You know, I show Delight's um, Good Beat video. He's in that. He's in um, I Can't Get No Sleep video, which mm-hmm. is just like this little black and white. I mean, it costs like $13, <laughs> right. clearly, to do. There are all these videos and things that he's in. So he has a body of work. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that is quite impressive. Um, he's in, you know, the, the, the Deep in Vogue video. Um, there's, an ex, there's an extended cut and then there's a shortcut and, and I show both in my class. And, you know, his presence is extraordinary. Yes. You know. Well, it's interesting because, it not, I mean, and not just Willie Ninja, there was a, there, um, 
Pepper LaBeija talks about that. You know, if I had the dollars, you know, we all be on a plane in Paris. And Venus and Octavia, it's interesting because there is such a, um, on the one hand, Venus is saying, I just, you know, I want maybe a house up in the Poconos with the man I love and nobody knows me. And then in the next breath, it's like, I want to be famous, you know, mm-hmm. and same with Octavia. You know, I want to, I want to be somebody, you know, I want to be famous. So, you know, if I could just be famous and I wouldn't care about the money, I would just want to have my name and everybody know my name. There goes Octavia. And what she says, I just want a normal life, which is just to be a household product. It's like, <laughs> was that normal? <laughs> and at the same time, going back to what you said, it's like, these folks are incredibly talented. But that's a question I was going to pose to you, Lewis, is like from your experience being there, how many people involved in ballroom culture really had a goal and an aspiration to take what they were doing in the ballroom and make a career out of it? First of all, the ballrooms were underground, right? Yeah. They were underground for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, they liked this community. Right. They felt safe in this community it was tight-knit and however much they fought in the ballrooms and whatever what have you they would always come together for this ball this theme yeah because mm-hmm. they were all seeking the same thing which is acceptance and you know this pride of place against you know the other houses who were also their friends you know when they're in the park you know they're not all from one house. No. They're yeah. all from different houses, mm-hmm. yeah, but they're hanging out with each other. So it was very underground on purpose. And so, you know, this notion of a movie and it being, you know, seen by everybody was very, you know, it wasn't taken well with all of them. Yeah, okay. some of them were like, yes, this is my opportunity <laughs> to be a star, a household product. Mm-hmm. Where there was no T in that yes. word, I was like, "Ooh, girl!" That's and the so, most important factor. A product. P R O D U C K. You know, I was like, "Okay, yeah, you could have edited that." Well, that goes right along with Angie Extravaganza keeping her kids intact. Intact. Yes. And so, you know, so a lot of them didn't see this as the best thing ever. Right. Yeah. But because they were trying to emulate and like your friends, you know, like this guy says in this essay, you know, it wasn't so much like they wanted to be this white rich person because they were really proud of who they were. But they were trying to emulate like, oh, I can do this, too. But I can do this in the safety of this environment, you know, environment. And then in the morning when the weekend is done, I go back to, you know, my job wherever, you know, because when i was when i was coming up most of those guys had really good jobs and they had jobs in corporate america a lot of them did that's not reflected in the film however no right. it's not reflected it's in not the framed film. that way and it's like no. not to take away from the fact of the of the of the poverty and the lack of privilege that's existent in the subjects but that's the side we don't see no you don't see that so and you know also they didn't have facebook back then they didn't have you know instagram back then and so the resources to quote unquote get out and get global mm-hmm. were were limited. Yeah. Us as the House of Extravaganza were lucky in the in the fact that we had allies. Yeah. One of our house members is David DePino, 
extravaganza. David Despino is a really famous, prolific DJ, mm -hmm. garage DJ, Italian. He was not Latin. And so he was one of those guys that would steer us in a different, on a different path because he saw, oh, this could be useful not only to you, Louis, or to you, Jose, or to you, Angie, but to the, you know, to this house. You know, it got us, you know, a centerfold spread in Time magazine, you know, and so a lot of them didn't have those you know, tools. And um, it's, you know, it wasn't for a lack of trying. It really wasn't. You know, the, what, what the question that you posed, Quinn, and, and your amazing answer, um, that's in many ways at the heart of Bell, Bell Hooks' critique of the film, that it, it, it doesn't grant the complexity that those of us who are black and brown know um, these figures on the screen would have had, the complexity of lives. You know, that's, that's one of her biggest beefs with the film. You know, for instance, we were talking about where the camera doesn't go, but the, um, you know, the figure, whoever it is, who says, my father told me you have three strikes against you. You're black, you're gay, blah, blah, blah. Um, clearly, this is someone who's in conversation with his father, who, whose father knows who he is. That would have really, to, to, show that, to show the father or to have that person on camera talking more about his father, you know, juxtaposed against when Pepper LeBeige is saying, these kids are kicked out, they don't have any place to go. Again, you know, I, 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 I love so much about the film, but it, it, it frustrates me because I know that there are layers that are just waiting to be peeled back. Coming up, I was hanging out with LaBeja's, LaMay's, the House of Princess, House of Chanel's, and my African-American brothers taught, taught me, you know, you better do this, you better do that, and you need to have a job. And they had jobs. Yes. Well, you know, there's a clip... Um, I guess the Gay Men's Health Center in New York, maybe about six or seven years ago, more actually, this is 2019, oh, man, <laughs> we're, we're going to be showing, hosting a screening of Paris is Burning Up, and a lot of the black and brown community were against it for a host of reasons, and there's one guy who's filmed, and you can find this on YouTube, who says that when Jenny was looking started filming and she came you know she came to him and she's and she and he says that she, she she said to him i want to know where the drug addicts are i want to know where the, the 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 working girls are that she had in mind what she was going to see and that she basically sought that out you know and it's that thing where in thinking that you already know what you're going to see you you end up not seeing what's actually before you which is a lot more complex and a lot more dynamic, right? So I want to talk about the depiction of the balls themselves. And really one of the things also left out was they don't show anything about the preparation of the balls, like who coordinated the balls no. and the space, just the practical logistics of like making it all happen. Now with Pose, when you go, you know, you look at Pose and people who haven't seen Paris is Burning, I think are going to be very surprised when they go back and look at the ballroom scenes because in Pose, it's like lit, and mm -hmm. the, you know, there's lighting, and the floors are, you know, glossy. And when you go and you look at the balls, you see these like shopping bags under the tables, and Pepsi cans, right. and you know, trash on the floor, and there's not the lighting. I mean, it's literally you're coming in to the Elks Lodge for yeah. a night. Like yeah. it's not there's no lighting rigs and no. stuff. Uh, you know, no. it's very about what. 
the patrons are bringing. There's a question I've always had in the back of my head from watching the film, which is I've just always assumed like the Elks clubs are kind of a relatively conservative boys club sort of a thing. I don't know what their background is. Like who convinced them to buy into (laughs) we are a group of people and we want to we want to rent your space like we want to like come in around midnight and we want to stay till like seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And we want to have basically a, like a, a drag contest. Like probably everything except that last line. We are a group of people who want to rent your space. <laughs> yeah. They probably stop right there. Rent your space. It's, it's, it's even the time is awkward. You think like, yeah, we're going to come in around like midnight, just hang out for the next eight hours. And right, right. midnight on Saturday, like Saturday you know, yeah, night basically through Sunday, eight, nine o'clock, right? You know, and again, that speaks to someone had to approach yes. them, right? Yes, someone who is somewhat learned and can, you know, fashion a deal, so not a dumb person, right? right. And so, you know, things like that sort of aspect was not kind of fleshed out in the film. And, uh, you know, whatever, right? Yes, we're, because we're it's category. Kinda... Somebody's getting the trophies and choosing, right. you know, the the schedule of the night and where the categories are going. I mean, all of that. The the signage back right. in the day. There were no computers. All that no. stuff was hand-drawn. And again, type, typed out on a piece of paper. Yes. You know, the paper was folded in half. There was mm-hmm. some artwork put on put on the front and then it had to be rexographed or copied you know back then so again these people were not dumb you know dumb they had some kind of resources from where you know wherever again this is where the house aspect comes in because they all kind of got you know they all got together and wanted to do you know wanted to put this on wanted to put this together however they got the money to put these balls on None of our business, right? <laughs> right. Whether it's shady or unshady, mm-hmm. but you have both of those aspects present in that house to make this ball come to fruition. Yes. There was no email. You know, we didn't, you know, email everybody in our, you know, address group, group book. text. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, group text. You know, we Evite. were out there going to the club, right? Evite. We were out there going to the club, passing out our flyers. Going to the club, going to the pier, passing out the flyers at the pier. Well, to reference another film, just to kind of like give it like that actually does kind of give a little context of the preparation of something is The Queen. And The Queen was, The Queen came out, when was it filmed? In 1968. And there's actually like a lot of stuff about the back end stuff, which is really fascinating. And there's actually one part where Sabrina, who's the, who's the like the chair and the coordinator of the whole thing, talking about trying to secure a hotel for the contestants and saying like, well, first thing is you have to find a hotel. Then you have to find a hotel that's going to house every single one of these drag queens. And they said, then the next challenge is actually keeping the drag queens all there. <laughs> so um, it's interesting because like even back then they were like very difficult and not just because of just the logistics of having a space and getting like, a, it's, it's difficult coordinating a large number of people, period. When you come to the ball, you said you were passing out flyers. Are people charged to come in? Yes. yes, you pay a fee to get into the ball, and that's how, you know, we as a house, they as a house, recoups that money, mm. especially for the trophies, because the you know you had to pay for the trophies. There, yeah. there was no getting around paying for the trophies, 
And so, yes, yeah. some of them were really big, big trophies. Nowadays, some of these balls have cash prizes. So in the beginning, there were no cash prizes. There were just trophies. They started out small trophies, right? Then the trophies started getting bigger. And then in the 90s, the trophies weren't, wasn't enough. It had to be a piece of art. So like at one point, at one of our balls, we had glass trophies you know glass sculpted mm. trophies because we always want to be better than the last <laughs> you know because you know those trophies were like soccer trophies yeah, you know <laughs> right exactly right? baseball trophies like right. they had the person with the wings and that was the you know that was the most uh non-athletic trophy that they can get right? <laughs> right and then you get the little placard on the bottom it said paris is burning and it either said grand prize or first uh first place Paris uh, also did second and third place. So that way, in which I really liked about Paris and her balls, she, you know, not one person was just getting one trophy, right? There was a grand, there was a first, there was a second, and there was a third. So you felt like you won something, that you came away from that judges panel with something that you were still seen and, you know, that it was worth it. It was worth your time. Especially since the balls are like $25 to get in, $30 to oh, get in. It was that much that back was no then. Oh, yeah. That was no joke. We had to recoup. <laughs> Who paid for this Elk Lodge? <laughs> They're just not opening the doors. <laughs> so how was that decided? Somebody says in the house, or you all collectively say, oh, let's throw uh, whatever the ball theme. You work together to come right. up with a theme or whatever, and then you decide to throw this ball. Yes. So what's the first step in the first step is the procuring the venue. Okay. Um, and the date. And so, you handle that each house handles that them. Yes. Themselves. So it was, right. you know, mother, father, and then the upper echelons of mm. the group. And in our case it was David Ian, Danny, Angie, David the Father, David DePino. And they would kind of get together and be like, We want our ball to be fabulous. What do we want to call it? Well, one day we had a snowball. <laughs> One year we had a spring affair. One year we had a black and white ball where everybody had to be in black and white. And, you know, and so that was at tracks. And since David DePino was the DJ at tracks, there you go. We had our venue. We didn't have to pay for it. So that means our trophies were that much more fabulous. And we can invite, you know, bing, bang, boom to guest judge. And, you know, so. So and then with the other houses, if somebody else, if somebody wants to compete in the categories, how do they go about they sign that? Up. You sign up uh-huh. prior to the ball mm-hmm. happening. OK, so, you know, then who the sign in sheet was out there somewhere. And of course, you know, the other heads of the houses would, you know, would come. I mean, it was very respectful and and kind of like this uh, protocol, this unheard, you know, this unheard of unwritten protocol where. If Ernest was the, you know, the father of the house of Ernest and Kim was the house, you know, mother of the house of Kim, you would come to me at the beginning of the night and saying, okay, so my kid is walking between and drag. Or you would come to me, where, you know, where's the sign in? I'd be like, oh, XYZ has it over there. Go, and then, so you would go over there and the children would start signing up. Everybody knew each other. It was this, you know, close knit network of people who knew each other. So, 
So generally these sign-ins would happen at the beginning of the event. It wouldn't be like people would have this sort of nebulous sign-in sheet going around on the streets beforehand. Like people would sign up the night of. Night of. Wow. Yes. And so then you, never get... knew, you never knew what you were going to get. You never knew what you were going to get. And then, you know, when we start, when it was time to start the ball, we'd get the sign-in sheet and then, you know, go off of what, who signed up. Uh -huh. But the thing is, after a while, people didn't want to sign up anymore because they wanted that element of surprise. I'm going to get you. I'm going to be fiercer than you. I'm going to let you have it. So I'm <laughs> not going to sign up. So I'm going to let all those poor suckers who did sign up go first. <laughs> Right? So when they get to the last one, anybody else walking <laughs> is what was said. And you'd be like, yes, me, boom. And then, of course, that brings the level of excitement, anxiety, you know, and it drama. Yeah, and the drama, and it ratchets it up. So everybody, goes, wah, wah. and you know, you appear at the end of the runway, or oh, boom, I didn't sign up, but here I am to walk this category. Let me let you have it, you know? And so, of course, everybody's like, ooh, she tried it. <laughs> and so there you go. I mean, there, you know, in a situation where, you know, these five people who signed up and doing their thing and it's exciting and it might be boring after the fifth one, here comes the sixth one who's a surprise and all of a sudden the, boy, the ball is now lit up again. So there you have, you know, this excitement for another hour or so. Was there in, within the ballroom scene, was there documentation? Was there somebody actually recording or taking pictures? Was there like an official, we gonna keep all this documented? I mean, I know I didn't take any pictures. <laughs> I think that the, the moment in which we live is, is so incredibly different from previous cultural moments in that everyone is so conscious of being content themselves. And everyone is so conscious of their brand. And everything is documented. Everything is documented. And I think, going back to what Lewis said before about you know, part of what made the scene so rich is that it was underground. Right. And, you know, um, for a host of reasons, people probably wouldn't want a lot of documentation. Now, I remember one time back in the 90s, I was doing a piece on um, The Catch for the LA Weekly. And for those who don't know, The Catch was like the premier big um, black gay dance club. And, yeah, for over 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I was doing this piece for the, for the Weekly and they assigned a photographer to come with me. And um, there are a lot of people, of course, who are just like, yes, take my picture. But there are a lot of folks who are just like, no, no. And I remember there was one couple, a lesbian couple, where one of the women said, yes, you know, you can take our picture. And her girlfriend freaked out, started yelling at us. And then she started following us around the club. And whenever the photographer would try to take a shot, she would jump in front of it and say, you can't do this. You can't do this. You're fucking up people's lives. You can't, you're fucking up people's lives. Wow. And um, like maybe an hour or so after the last time she did it, because we were there all night, I saw her and her girlfriend and they were sitting like on these, you know, in the, in the catch, there was um, like a screen at the back wall and, mm -hmm. and, and stairs leading up to the stage. And she was sitting on the stairs and she was crying and her girlfriend was rubbing her back. And I felt so bad because I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought through how many people were going to the catch. You know, that was their one chance to be who they wanted to be, who they were, and to feel free and to not feel like, you know, somebody might find me out 
my, my, my parents might find me out, my job might find me out, my school might find me out. You know, so that, that level of, you know, not wanting, quote unquote, documentation. All right, so closing, I just want everybody kind of to talk about your, you know, what you feel like the cultural impact has been of Paris is Burning, why it has sustained all this time, why, you know, we continue to reference it and how it's really sprinkled out into popular culture. Um, So you go first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's important for everyone to see whether you're gay, straight or not. I mean, it's so much about race and class and um, black excellent, you know, people who really made something out of nothing. Um, Much like hip hop and a lot of these other cultures, it's you're taking something and just flipping it and expanding on it and making it your own you know, um, voguing now has, there's three different styles of voguing, but it's just continued to grow and expand and change. And now you have the Kiki scene, which is very active and thriving and really just is a, you know, a direct, um, you know, it's the, the children of that whole original ballroom scene. And it's really important for, anyone who feels I think marginalized or you know for me as a, a straight woman seeing it I knew nothing about ball culture I you know this was my it was very eye-opening for me and seeing this whole idea of a chosen family it resonated with me so much um, you know feeling like connecting with people who are just like-minded and, you know, not necessarily your birth family, but people who, you know, absolutely feel like brothers, sisters, mother, you know. So, yes, I think that's why it continues to be um, important. Um, Looking at a time when I think, you know, again, before, as Lewis mentioned, this is before Facebook, before email, how people in the ball culture just created this whole scene just by word of mouth, just by coming together and having something, you know, um, that was beautiful and creative, a space to create and, you know, that wasn't about Instagram or, you know, trying to be an influencer. It just actually really was about creating something um, organic and that felt empowering you know so that's my little take on it okay yes <laughs> Quinn okay so I think it's 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 a complicated response sort of like what my current take on it I think in the bell hooks article the the that the, the she wrote one of the things is her reaction of leaving the screening and seeing people you know Caucasian people leaving go oh that was wonderful that was fabulous that was marvelous and I do have kind of a bit of a fear that sometimes that's own, people's only takeaway from the movie is is like the catchphrases and to to Ernest's point too some of the dumbing down of this stuff and like as much as I have watched every single season of RuPaul's Drag Race I will probably continue to watch it until it gets canceled um, but there's even a bit of that in like the appropriation of the phrases it's kind of takes it out of context um, 
even so, I think one thing to kind of look at kind of like mainstream drag culture, kind of like, because drag race is kind of it right now. In comparison, it's like, there's no butch queen first time in drags at a ball on drag race. It's almost like if you do anything that's even like clock slightly as masculine, that you're, you're dinged. And so I think to kind of look back and see how diverse the drag scene was back then and kind of a little bit more pigeonholed it is right now. Not that there isn't room for creativity, but it seems a lot more tight right now. Um, but at the same time, I think as much as I enjoy the movie for the entertaining parts of it, I think for me and especially being a social worker and, and teaching social work, I think from a social welfare perspective, it's gonna sound, it sounds like I'm a big, big Debbie Downer right now, but I'm not trying to be. But I think really what it is, it's really about sort of like the manifestations and the adaptations to really poorly execute the social policy in the U.S. And a particular microcosm of it as seen in New York in the 80s. On the other hand, I think the most brilliant thing about it is the resiliency and the art that came out of it and the sense of community that was developed as a result of people just not being given a fair shake in the world. And I think that that's really the sort of like the hope that I think comes from it. And I hope when people see the film that they can also, you know, take a look at the stark reality because the truth of the matter is the, the, those kinds of themes dealing with institutional racism, classism, and sexism, and also to just levels of privilege are still very existent today. But I think the thing to take away from it is, is, is to look at those things, sort of the resiliency, the strengths, the, the, the resources that, like Lewis was talking about, the resources that were pulled together to create the sense of community as a way to sort of like cope and navigate these difficult waters. So, um, and I'm also saying that, I know you, you people can't see from listening to this thing. I'm also saying this, I want to also acknowledge the fact that I am a cisgendered European American male. And so my perspective, I also have to keep myself in check when I'm saying these things too. So in recognizing like, you know, the privilege that I possess in watching the film too, and my framework as well. So, um, but I'm probably going to see it another 12,000 times more before I pass away. So I, the film holds a very special place in my heart and I think it will continue to. So that's my spiel. I think one of my favorite examples of just how pervasive the um, influence of the film is, is this book called Ordinary Beast. Um, it's a collection of poems by um, Nicole Seeley. I'm obsessed with the entire book because she's just amazing, this black woman who, oh man, I would stalk her if I were on social media. Um, <laughs> but she writes three poems. I was going to read them, but I, I'm not going to. Please do. No, 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 no. Because I, I, sure? I, I wouldn't do them justice. But she writes three poems, the persona poems, in the voices of Octavia, um, Pepper and Venus. And she weaves in snippets of their dialogue from the film, but she really also just in, inhabits their voices and their personas. And these poems are just so wonderful. So I, I'd really recommend, you know, go to the library, check out Ordinary, Ordinary Beast by Nicole Seeley. It's fantastic. Um, and then the last thing, I promise this will be the last thing I say. Um, in 2015, Benji Hart, who um, writes and is an activist, a, a queer activist of color, um, used to write and publish under the name Rat Fag, the amazing, smart kid, so brilliant. Um, and gives all sorts of cultural analysis and, and cultural critiques, and his politics are very, very 
um, very like left progressive, whatever you want to call it. And he wrote an he wrote an article called "Vogue is Not for You." And um, I'm going to just read an excerpt from it, if that's okay. Please. Uh, he says, because there is such a long and well-documented history of the appropriation of Vogue, I will not teach voguing to professional dancers, to companies who want to use it to make choreography. I will not teach it in white spaces, in wealthy spaces, in spaces that are not queer-controlled and affirming. My conviction for taking this stance is this. Voguing belongs to queer people of color, specifically trans, poor, working, sex-working, homeless, and young queer people of color. We created it. We need to be the ones dancing it, and we need to be the ones protecting it. In a society that is constantly limiting our access to housing, education, land, and resources of all types, it is laughable that the privileged find such comfort in limiting and our limiting their access to our bodies, traditions, and genius. Anyone who objects to being told they can't vogue needs to first ask themselves how they are impacted by the systems that result in the daily deaths of queer people of color and what they are doing to combat our institutional disenfranchisement. The benign belief that crossing boundaries always promotes diversity, that sharing space and culture results in sharing privileges and resources, needs to be finally debunked. For this same soft rhetoric is destroying black and brown communities, forcing people out onto the street and filling up prisons. The truth is, when the powerful cross borders, the flow tends to be unilateral. When the wealthy lay hands on our culture, the outcome is our displacement, not our inclusion. The end point is the depoliticizing of our most sacred sources of resistance, which only benefits those who seek to quell our demands for change. Okay. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Can you? You just took us to church there, and I just, I just live for you so much right now. I just, I just can't with you. Well, it's, it's, it's the brilliance of Benji Hart. You know, one of the things, one of the reasons I love teaching, is because it really. Well, you have two choices when you teach. You can either become that really bitter, misanthropic old person, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I was on my way to becoming, um, or you can just realize how much brilliance there is and. Black and brown queer youth are just at the forefront of everything, everything. And his political analysis, you know, the, the essay, like I said, is called Vogue is Not For You. Um, you can Google either Benji Hart or Radfag, R-A-D-F-A-G. Um, and it's, you know, I'm really inspired by these kids and their vision, their commitment to politics, their commitment to change, um, the way they advocate for themselves because they know they know no one else is going to and it's so interesting to see to me to see the pushback they get and where that pushback comes from um and they stand up to it they're resilient and it just really really inspires me i like i said this film was um a part of my life it depicts a, a part of my life where you know, I grew up and grew into the person that, you know, is Louis Extravaganza. I love what you said, Kim, how like you like how these people come together and create something, you know, which has, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, has always been the case from way back for people of color, right? Because their circumstances haven't always been the best, hardly ever, 
Yeah, so they get together and they make art or they make their situations more palatable by dance, song, you know, church, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, and that's, you know, that's what's really eye-opening and, you know, hits me over the head when I see, you know, this film because these these wonderful people come together and they make something out of nothing. And and yes, when Miss Livingston was coming in to film, they, you know, were guarded about it because this is their thing, you know. And yes, some people say, yes, we should show the world that we're fabulous too. But a lot of them was like, no, they will take this from us. You know, and in a way that has happened, you know, in a way that has happened. I've taken, you know, part of that too, right? I've taken part in that too. I've taken Vogue and been the choreographer along with Jose in this Vogue video. And we have traveled with this very famous artist and we brought it all over the world. And, you know, in a way, yes, we wanted to showcase you know, our talent and, and give that outwardly. And we did that because we wanted to reach other people who might be in our situation and give them just a glimpse of what it could be for them as well. And we've gotten a lot of people, and a lot of youngsters, you know, say to us, I, you know, you've opened that door for me. You made it okay for me to be who I am through watching you do and be who you are, you know, in that time. So there is a good to all, you know, there is a good to all this. You know, the flip of the coin is that there is a lot of, you know, there is some, you know, not so good to it. And I guess that's just life, right? That's just this gay life. I love you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, God, if I were to ever find those two kids at the end of that movie, I mean, they impacted me. I still, they, they haunt me. Yeah. yeah. And if anybody knows, please yeah. DM us, email, you know, they haunt me because they were such beautiful little babies, little babies. And, and I know the streets took care of them. I know the streets took care of them for a while, but it only takes that one moment Thank you so much, Ernest, for coming and being with us and talking with us. And I really would love to do this again with you. I really would because your insight and knowledge and your being is so amazing and it really resonates with me. And I feel so connect, you know, connected every time you're expressing these words. And I just, I just love it. And Quinn, of course, you know how much I love you. Dancing in front of your DJ booth is just one of my greatest pleasures. So thank you so much for being here with me and Kim. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Definitely. Oh, good. Most definitely. Yes, yes. Thank you. That's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear. All right, you guys. This is Louis Extravaganza. And Kim Blackwell. And this is Work, Work the Podcast.
Don't forget to subscribe and you can follow us on Instagram at work podcast. That's W E R Q U E P O D C A S T. You can also follow me at workdanceclass.com. And this was work, work the podcast. Bye. We'll see you later, guys. Thank you. Bye.